we're going to um, have a time where Ian, who brings leadership to the Bosch PM congregation um, on the same campus, uh, is going to be uh, speaking to us today, bringing the Word of God to us this morning. And uh, we're excited about that, Ian, um, and uh, really looking forward to it. But uh, just before we do, we're going to have a medley of readers who are going to come up and read different pieces. So we're going to give this a try. Hopefully it uh, comes across um, Easy for you guys to follow on screen, but uh, we're going to have six different readers coming to this uh, screen uh, and to this uh, mic and just reading. So I'm going to hand over to them, and then Ian's going to come after that. So we're continuing in worship as we get to read the Bible together. We're reading Genesis chapter 1 from verses 1 to verses 31 in the ESV version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God... And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which they seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and then there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's God's word to us. So kids, time for you to get connected to your devices. And a reminder that we are going to have communion at the end of our meeting today. So if you can get everything ready for that too. Great, Ian. Go, Ian. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you for reading that. Uh, Amazing to hear the creation story read by different people. The the pinnacle of God's creation being humans and having six different humans read it was amazing. So I'm so grateful for that. And and I'm really excited to to get into the text and to speak to us about what God may be saying to us. But before we get there, just a bit of a personal update. You know, this is the first time since lockdown that I've preached specifically to AM in the AM context. It's been a long time. You may have seen me on the citywide feed here and there, but the first time I get to be back in AM. I'm so excited. It's good to be back. Not only is it my first time back in AM after a long time, it's my first time preaching after sabbatical. So La and I had a sabbatical, and you guys get me fresh off sabbatical. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, The guys here seem to think it's a good thing. Wait until they get three months worth of content in one sermon. Okay. No, I, I really am good to be back. But the real big news in the Kruger household is that um, we had a baby, a little baby Nathan Joshua Kruger. You're going to see a slide now of him. There he is. I think he's the cutest dude around, a big boy, 4.2 kilos. And I'm um, just so proud of that guy. I think there's another slide of him. Um, just want to show off. There's my little daughter with him and just think he's the cutest guy. And that happened while we were on sabbatical. Um, he's really cute kept me up a lot last night, so I'm a bit tired and fragile, but it's good to be here and God is good, so we're, we're going to push on. But here's the big news about uh, little Nathan that really gets me excited. I don't know if that slide came up, but Nathan looks just like 
Tim Keller. He looks just like him. I mean, look at that. It's exactly the same nose, same chin, same head. My little boy is Tim Keller. Um, but in my more honest moments, I, I try to work out which way this actually works. Does my boy look like Tim Keller or does Tim Keller look like a newborn baby? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But we'll figure it out as we go along. Guys, let's get to something a bit more serious. We are in a wonderful series uh, entitled Origins. And last week, Ryan kind of made sense of the reality that there must be a creator. And the main way in which he did that was he looked at the world and he he looked at the evidence that the world presents us and how the the evidence of this world and the intricacies of this world point to the reality that there is a designer and that there's a creator. And um, I think it's so important that we, we find ourselves in a series like this, because in a season that we're currently in, the walls can close in a bit, and the first thing to get squeezed out of us can be perspective, and we feel it, we're in the small, tight, confined space, and things are not the way they should be. And when we find ourselves in that space, another thing that tends to get squeezed out of us is hope. But what we, we really our trust in God to achieve in this series and in this time is that as we step back and we, we just broaden our gaze and we look a bit wider than the season we are and we go all the way back to the beginning and we look at what God intended to do and what he intends creation to be like and, and, and all his purposes and his promises and his power in creating the world that we live in, it would give us a hope for the future as we look beyond the season we're in. And, and in some ways, looking back to the beginning and the start will give us a hope to where we're headed and where we're going that takes us out of the current season and gives us a bit more of a healthy perspective, injecting hope back into us as God's people. That's what we're hoping this series will do. And, and, and today I get to talk to Genesis 1, the, the, the Bible's creation account. Now, I don't know if this was planned, but I came back from sabbatical just over two weeks ago and got told I'm going to be preaching on this text and then realized it's, it's quite a hotly debated text. And I wondered if that was designed that while I was away, hey, let's give this to Ian to do. But um, as I dived into this text, Louise is saying no, I think. Or yes, yes, it was. There we go. Confirmed. Okay. But as I dived into my prep and as I've been diving into this text, I've realized that the debated elements of this text are actually missing the whole point of the text. And as we as we go into it and as we unpack it, I think we're going to see that. You see, when we approach scripture, scripture, we have to approach it with the right question, or we have to understand which question the text is answering. So, if you know anything about me, I'm a how person. I love the detail. I love the why. I love the dream. I love the vision as well, but I always want to be involved in the how, and I'm quite a detailed person. It drives Laura absolutely nuts. Laura will come to me with an emotion, and she wants to tell me what she's feeling and who made her feel that way. And when the conversation will start, and as she gets going, I'll interrupt her and be like, oh, when did this happen? How long was the interaction for? What was the weather like when this happened? Where are you? Did you sleep last night? And I'm trying to get a bit of context and understanding. And she's like, Ian, you do not get it. I don't want you to ask me the how question. I want you to know who did this to me, and I want you to know how it made me feel. That's, um, that's my worrying is how. But my little two-and-a-half-year-old girl, Layla Grace, she seems to be hardwired to ask the question, Why? Everything is why at the moment. Layla, go to bed. Why? Because you need to sleep. Why? Layla, please don't eat that biscuit. Why? Because it's before supper. Why? I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. You can't ask why. I gave you the why, and you're still asking why. She's hardwired to ask the question why. And both these questions are really good, good questions. The why question is an important question, and the how question is an important question. But we're going to see that when we approach the Scriptures, when we approach the Bible, we have to make sure that we're, we're understanding which question the text that we're currently reading is asking. Because if we get it wrong, 
We're either going to miss the point and drive someone crazy like I do with Laura, and, or if we get it wrong with the why question, we're going to be asking the wrong question, and we're going to be driving someone crazy like Leila does to me. So we have to, as we approach Genesis 1, say, try to figure out what question is this text trying to answer? What is it trying to do? What information is it trying to convey? And we're going to do that by, by asking three questions of Genesis 1. The first one we're going to go is, what type of literature is this? What type of literature is this? Is going to give us a really good understanding of what question is being answered. The second thing we're going to ask is, why does God, through Moses, use a six-day structure? What is he trying to communicate with a six-day structure? And then thirdly, we're going to ask probably the most important question this morning. What does this text say about God, the Creator? So let's look at that, that first question. What type of literature is this? When I went on to sabbatical, I said, that I'm only going to read fiction. I was a bit theologyed out. So I would pick up a book, and if it was like heavy theology, I was like, not for now, another pile. And I would check. And the very first thing I would check of every book I read was, what genre of literature is this? And I would pick up the book, and I'd go, oh, fiction. And I'd say, oh, science fiction. I'm like, I know what to do with a science fiction book. I sit on the couch, I drink wine, I read it, and I relax. That's what I was looking for. And when we approach scripture, it is so important that we understand what genre of scripture it is. And we, we do this quite intuitively. We kind of know when we're dealing with more historical fact or something that is more poetic, and we, we do it intuitively. But at times, it, it takes a bit more work to figure that out. And we're going to ask that question of what literature is this in Genesis 1? And what we find in, in the scriptures is that there are kind of eight genres of literature, eight big genres of literature, and they're on a kind of spectrum. You have the spectrum from Luke 24, which I would call history. You could even go as far as to say scientific history. It's, it's facts about history. All the way over to the other side of the spectrum, where you get something like Song of Solomon, which is mostly poetic. So to read Luke 24, 1 to 3, you can see this is answering the how question. But on the third day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the historical account of finding the empty tomb, one of the great moments in Christianity, an empty tomb, history, fact. That's what Luke 24 is. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have Song of Solomon's. And I, I, Solomon, I really hope you did not use this text last week on Valentine's Day. Okay, Solomon 4 verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. If you haven't read it, go and read it. It gets way more exciting than that and, and interesting. talks about a neck that is a tower. And, and, and this, this side of the spectrum, when you hit Song of Solomon, you ruin the scriptures. You ruin what is trying to be said if you take it literally. In fact, I want to show you a slide. Someone drew the literal woman of Song of Solomon's. If you have a look there on the slide, or, um, that's what it would look like. It's hideous. You ruin poetry if you take it literally. What, what Song of Solomon is trying to do is trying to convey an emotion. It's trying to get us to feel what he feels for this woman. And I promise you, he feels nothing for that woman. It's a, a different woman, okay? And he's trying to convey that, but we ruin it if we take it literally. The same with Luke is we ruin it if we don't see it as historical fact. And we stop saying, no, it's just mythical. It's just a, 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 a lie of an account. No, we need to take it as fact. So as we approach... Um, Genesis, we need to figure out where on the spectrum does this text fit, or we're going to ruin it. And um, in, 
in Hebrew writing, it was specifically with Moses. He wrote a few books of the Old Testament. You'll see that he interchanges between genres quite quickly and not always with, with um, clarity. That's why you'll see translators translating the different kind of genres into different formats in your Bible as they go along, trying to help us understand that the genre here has changed. We need to read it slightly differently to understand what it's trying to say. And so as we, we look at Genesis 1 and we try to answer that question, what type of literature is this? I think there are four clues that we are given by Moses to understand where on the spectrum this text sits. And the first one is, he gives us headings. He gives us chapter headings. In, in chapter 2, verse 4, you'll see that Moses uses this, this phrase, these are the generations of. And then for the rest of the book of Genesis, he uses 10 times in different spaces, these are the generations of. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he goes into detail. He starts to name people and goes into some detail. Every time he does these are the generations of, is almost a chapter heading to more historical information that he wants to give us, facts that he wants us to understand, the how he wants us to get. But when we approach Genesis 1, we see that the opening statement is, in the beginning, and it seems like this is an overture to the rest of Genesis, that he's, he's, he hasn't yet started with um, these are the generations of, but rather he's going, in the beginning, God made. It's this big, sweeping statement. You're going to see why that's important a bit later. And then the second clue we, we get, and, and that's starting to show us that it's probably not on the Luke side of the spectrum. It's probably starting to shift a bit more towards the Solomon, Song of Songs side of the spectrum. We see that this account of creation isn't in chronological order. It's not trying to tell things as they happened, or, or, or it's hard to make sense and say that it is happening in a chronological order when you see day and night being made, and then only much later do you see the sun and stars and moon being made. How do you have day and night without the sun, moon, and stars? You also see plants being created, but yet there's no sun to sustain them and give them life. So it's hard to see that this text is a chronological, answering the question how, like Luke, kind of text. The third clue we get to, to try and help us place this uh, piece of scripture somewhere on the spectrum is that um, Genesis 1 describes the same events as Genesis 2, but in a different way. Genesis 1 seems to be these broad brushstrokes or a wide angle shot of the whole, trying to give us context and perspective, emote an emotion in us and answer the question, who? As it goes, look at this. Look at this wide angle shot. And this is a stylistic tool that, that has been used throughout writing and is used even today. I worked in the film industry for eight years before I became a pastor. I worked on movies, lots of movies, and I, I got to engage in movies. And almost every movie and every scene starts with the wide angle shot, giving context and trying to emote a kind of emotion out of us, answering the who question of, of the movie. And, or, or I think, and, and we would do it often. I, I used to hate it because you'd be in the detail of everything in the scene, and then the director would say, you see that mountain up there? That's an amazing spot for our wide-angle intro shot. And then all the equipment had to get up there pr pr pretty quickly. So I'm well acquainted with the overture, the opening scene, trying to bring more of an emotion and a, a context and an understanding to the who than the how. 
And um, I think of two movies. One of my favorite movies is Gladiator, and it opens with the scene of him walking through a field, dragging his hands over the top of um, the, the flowers in the field, and he's just doing that. And it's so emotive. Immediately you're sucked in, and as you see his hand and him starting to get distance from the camera, you start to ask the question, who is this? And that is starting to create the right sort of question, who is this? I think of Notting Hill. I don't know if you've watched it. If you haven't watched it, go and watch it. I think of the collage in Notting Hill where, where he, it's an amazing piece of cinematic work where he walks down a street. And as he walks down the street in real time and everything's happening around him in real time, you see the seasons change from summer to um, autumn to winter to uh, spring as he goes. I struggled with the seasons there. I didn't sleep well last night. And, 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 he, and you see them changing. It's obviously not real. It's, it's a poetic expression of the, the change of time as expressed by the filmmaker. And it works so powerfully. And, and in, it seems because of this wide-angle lens of Genesis 1 into very detailed Genesis 2, these are the generations of. And then we see two, zoom in on two people who are named. We see rivers being named. We see the land around the rivers being named. The sort of detail we get is even the precious stones that are found in the ground around those rivers. So it seems that we've gone from wide to tight. And the Bible does this often, this kind of way of historical into poetic to express something. Judges 4, you have an historical account of a a famous battle, and then Judges 5 is a song about that battle. Then you see in Exodus chapter 14, an historical account of the Exodus, and then Exodus chapter 15, a song about that the, the, the Exodus. And you see in Acts that, that um, language of uh, Acts 2, that language, uh, poetic language is used, imagery language is used, and prophetic words is they speak about the moon turning to blood. They don't mean that the moon's going to turn to blood and drop down to the ground. They mean that they're trying to express something prophetically. So the, the Bible does this from, from factual historical language into poetic. Let's make sense of this. And so we're starting to see, if you look at these three things already, that I'm starting to say and see and believe that it doesn't sit closer to the Luke side of the spectrum. It's far closer to the Song of Solomon side. It's not pure poetry because in Hebrew poetry, there are rhyming pairs with similar words, and we don't see that here. But it's, it's probably more like a song than a poem. And that's my f- first fourth clue, is that if you look at this text and you see people reading each day, It has a rhythm to it. You have the days which are almost choruses, and between them you have refrains like day and night, or morning and evening, it was day, it was good, and it's more song-like. And that's not an uncommon view on this, this text, that it is a song of creation. Andrew Wilson and Tim Keller both helped me so much in my prep of this message, and Andrew Wilson says it's a song to describe the indescribable, and Tim Keller calls it the song of creation. This is an intro into Genesis and all the detail that we're going to get in a way that is meant to answer the question, who? Who and why? We see that God is the creator and that he chose to create and that he sees it as good. It's trying to express the reality that everything that exists around us, the trees, the flowers, the birds, the plants, the oceans, the skies, the universe, the sun, the moon, and the stars, all of it was created by God. That's what it's trying to communicate, the who and the why. 
I, I really don't think that this is trying to communicate the how, and that's where so much of the debated stuff comes in, is the how. Is the earth 6,000 years old? Is the earth 4.5 billion years old? How old is the earth, or how did it come about? Did, did God say, and then immediately there were trees and people and plants and, tree, uh, and animals, that's just how it happened? Or was there a process like evolution that took place over billions of years to create humanity? I don't think, and fill the earth, I don't think that this text is trying to answer that question. I don't think that this text is trying to tell us how. I think that it is far closer to the who and why. It's actually trying to emote something, and when we get bogged down too much in the how, we almost lose the emotion of the text that's trying to get us, that sense of awe and wonder that we serve a creator God and we know who he is. You see, when we get this wrong and we make this text about how and not why and who, I think we create this false dichotomy between God's world and God's word. So we've got God's word, gift from God, created by God. And I asked them to put this over here because I saw it when I arrived. And we've got God's world over here. And I think sometimes what we do is we create this false dichotomy between God's word and God's wo- uh, world. Yes, God's word stands in authority above me, and it's over there, and it's full of truth and wonder, and it's created by God. This is God's creation, God's word, and it's truth, and it speaks to us. And we need God's truth more than ever. We are in a time in, in history where, where there's fake news, where we're told that truth can be subjective, where we have greater levels of polarization. We need something that we can anchor ourselves to. And yes, God created the word of God, and it stands in authority over me. But God also created the world of God. And this is also a book that we can go and read and explain. And when the word of God doesn't tell us how, when the focus of like Genesis 1 is more who, we are more than welcome. In fact, we're encouraged to go and worship God by reading this book that he's written, by going and investigating what, what we know to be true in God's world. And so both then, and we don't need to create a dichotomy. We just need to go, which question is being answered? In this case, Genesis 1, who? We don't know the how entirely, so let's go and investigate God's world. I've got an analogy to hopefully help us understand that there isn't, that that, that Scripture and God's world are in complement to each other. They're not opposed to each other. The birth of my boy, Nathan. When I tell the story, I go, my wife is amazing. I have high levels of respect for my wife. She carried this boy. We didn't know it was a boy for like nine months. And he was huge. And she is tiny, if you know her. And, and then we, on the 18th of January, we got to go into hospital. And, and um, we, I got to meet our, our, our child. And we didn't know. And on that day, I got to experience the moment where I saw it was a boy. And I was like, my boy, Laura, we have a boy. And it was this incredible moment in our lives. And we'll never forget it. Wonderful moment of meeting my boy, Nathan. That's how I would account the moment. That's the who. Well, my wife is amazing. And the why, our boy was born. But if you had to ask Laura's gynae about that moment, it would be very different. You would say, yeah, on the 18th of January, I booked an operating theater to uh, perform a cesarean section because of certain medical conditions of my patient. And when we arrived, everything was good. I noticed her blood pressure was very low, so we had to move quickly. So we went into the room and we... Um, did an incision through this muscle. We pulled out a baby. I passed it on to the pediatrician because that's his job. And then I stitched it up using this thickness of stitching and, and it was done and it was successful. And there was a baby that was born. 
That's the how question. And I could have gone into a whole lot of other detail. It would have been unnecessary. But, but if you have to ask the doctor, he's going to give you the how answer. That's the study of God's world. But if you have to ask me, I'm going to give you the, the why and who answer because it was such an amazing moment in my life. These things are not opposed to each other. They complement each other. Both those accounts are true. Both those accounts are real. And they're not in competition with each other. The second question we need to ask is, why does God use a six-day structure? If this process could have taken billions of years or was happened over 6,000 years, why does God use this six-day structure? We have to ask that question. Surely this text isn't just about why and who, but also it's about how because of the six-day structure. But then you have to ask the structure and go, well, could it be that this structure is trying to communicate something different to just the how? Maybe um, God, uh, Moses, being inspired by God, was trying to say something and structure this, this opening part to Genesis in such a way that he's communicating something to the people around him and to us generations later. And if you look at the structure, you have day one, universe being created, day two, sky and sea being created, and then day three, you have the land being created. So you have God out of nothing. That's the miracle. God out of nothing creating these spaces, the universe, the land, and the sky and sea on day one through three. And then what you see is in day four through six, the universe is then filled with sun and stars. The sky and sea are filled with birds and fish. And day six, the land and animals, the land is filled with um, animals and humans. And so you see, see the structure. This, this is starting to feel more like a stylistic tool that, that Moses is using as he's being inspired by God to communicate something to us. My God out of nothing created these spaces. And my God out of nothing created the things to fill these spaces. And that's significant. Because if you jump back into the time of Moses and you understand what's going on around him, you can see that he's actually communicating something quite powerful. Because in the time of Moses, everybody pretty much around him was worshipping the sun, the moon, and the stars. And people were even worshipping sea creatures because they believed that there was this battle between the, the gods of the sky and the sea creatures for control of the earth. And there was a lot of worship of created things. And there's something profound about the way that this gets structured to show the people around Moses, no, the big thing you need to know is that my God created everything out of nothing. And I'm going to structure this in such a way that you can see he created the spaces. Long before your gods even existed, the spaces were there. Then my God filled those spaces with, create, with created things, the things that you would worship. Don't worship them. They created things. And look how far down the line my God made them in this story. And he's almost communicating to everybody around, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping created things, and you've lost sight of its creator. And this structure that, that Moses uses is a powerful one for communicating that. We also see in the structure that, and we're going to dive into this in quite a lot of detail in a later talk, but, but in the structure, God sets up a pattern for human rest, that we would work six days and rest on the seventh. So if you look at it that way, you could see that this six-day structure might be communicating far more than just the how, but might be speaking of the reality that there is a creator God and that we shouldn't worship created things. And I love how wonderfully simple this account of creation is. It is so simple. In the Hebrew, uh, it's only 76 words. I didn't know that. Andrew Wilson helped me with that. It's only 76 
words in, in the Hebrew language. And every single one of those 76 words can be translated into every single known language on our planet. It's amazingly simple. And I start to see something of the elegance of God's design and the way that he inspires Moses to write this beginning thing when I understand its simplicity. God didn't go and say, okay, Moses, we're going to write volumes upon volume about gravity and its relationship to the sun and earth to the sun and how that creates gravity. And, and, we're not going to, and then we're going to write a book about oxygen and how humans breathe out oxygen and trees take up oxygen and put up CO2. You know what I'm trying to say. It's the other way. We work in opposite. You see, that's... That's why I don't want to get into the debate. I'm not a scientist. And so you have that happening. And and, and what could happen is, yeah, we could have written volume upon volume upon volume upon volume of library upon library upon library and said to someone, you want to know the who and why and how question? Go there. But instead, you have these 76 simple words that explain that God is the creator and that he made everything. And they're written in such a way that they should emote a sense of awe and wonder. And the reason I love the simplicity of it is, my, I said it earlier, my two-and-a-half-year-old little girl has it hardwired into her to ask why. I think that's by God's design, that every young kid would, would just have a season in their life where they just ask why enough times. Because you know what happens is you only have to ask why about five times, sometimes less, sometimes more, about five times before you get to Genesis 1. Layla, don't pull that flower off the bush, please. Why? It will die. Why? It only gets what it needs to live when it's attached to the bush. Why? Because that's how it was designed. Why? Because God made everything, and that's how he chose to make it. Genesis 1. And she understands the story of Genesis. We have a book that depicts it in these beautiful paintings of of the six days and and how it works. And it's this beautiful depiction that even my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter can understand. It drives me nuts because after we've got to Genesis 1, she'll still ask why. And then I'll be like, you can ask him one day. And if you keep asking why, that day's going to come soon. Day's going to come soon, okay? And because of this, because this text is not trying to answer the question how, but rather the question why and who, it actually leaves open at least three coherent interpretations of it. There are people, and many of us in the room and at home would believe the young earth, that the earth is 6,000 years old. But because there isn't that level of detail, we can say that that's coherent with science. There are ways in which God could do that. The the second option is old earth creationists, which say the six days are literal, but the days are really, really, really long. I mean, you're left with the question of how did plants survive and how did we have day and night for so long without the moon and stars, which were created much later? But you can, there are ways around that. We can, you can hold that view. It's okay. Old earth creation, six days literal. And then there's also theistic evolution, which says the earth is 4.6 billion years old. And evolution was a mechanism that our sovereign and powerful God used to bring about life. That's okay. It's okay. Because the text is primarily asking the who and why question, not the how question. And we get to go into God's world and answer where the Bible doesn't tell us. But I think the worst thing we can do is fight about it and argue about it and miss the fact that God created. You see, no matter what view you hold, every Christ follower is a creationist. Every, to be a Christ follower, you have to be a creationist. You have to believe that God created everything. And I've made this mistake badly 
making the argument around the three different options the main thing of this text. And I, and I made that mistake. Law and I, Law and I were... Um, when we were married, newly married, I was still in youth ministry, and she and I was just starting off in the film ministry and youth ministry. I was still doing youth ministry stuff, and Laura had just become a, a high school math teacher, and the and there was a a girl who was in Laura's math class who was in youth group on a Friday and who lived just down the road from us, and she became part of our family and um, family friends and became a close part of, and we had a good relationship with her. And it was amazing because we, were, we would have conversations about God and we engaged. And she, she wasn't a Christ follower. I don't know if she is one now. And she loved biology and she was a sharp, clever girl. And she's gone on, she's now in Germany, probably the doctor twice over, investigating these little cells of a fish that can change color and trying to figure out how they work. And she loved animals and she loved nature and she loved creation. And she believed in evolution. She said, there's so much scientific evidence for this. And I was a young um, pastor guy with high levels of belief and conviction that were unmanaged and immature. And I made the big issue with her, evolution. And I'm not a scientist. I I I didn't have the information I needed. And anyway, so we, I made that the big issue. And I just remember all these moments of conversations around evolution and evolution and evolution and this and that and why. It, and, and I actually didn't know what I was talking about. And the byproduct of that was instead of me engaging with her in such a way as to say, you know what, your passion for animals, your passion for biology, your passion for understanding how it all works, your passion to go deep into the cells and figure out how they, they reproduce and replicate and do all that stuff, that is amazing. Why didn't I just celebrate the wonder of the passion that God had given in her for creation? And in that go, you know what, let's not stop there. Let's, let's investigate. Let's look at the flowers and the trees and everything. But let's not stop there. Let me introduce you to its creator. And as you encounter him and as you, you meet him and as you get to know him, he will animate and bring to life everything that you love about his world in ways that you can't even comprehend. I wish I'd done that rather than focused on the how. And argued about things I knew very little about. We must keep the main thing the main thing. God created everything. He's the creator. The final question, this is quick. What can we learn about God from Genesis 1? That, I said, is the most important question of this text. And it's the question that I wish I'd asked our friend that many were still in contact and hopefully she'll watch us and see that I was a palooka back then. But, and I'm starting to change my mind in, in, in maybe how God did things. But when we get it wrong, we miss this question, what can we learn about God? And I think that's the primary te- uh, point of Genesis 1. I want to introduce you to the Creator, and I want you to understand some things about Him. And in a season like we're in, in the season of Corona, there's some stuff we can learn from Genesis 1 that should really serve our hope levels, that should really serve our confidence levels. One, we see that our God is a powerful God. I love in Genesis 1.16, he has this throwaway line, creating, 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 and the stars. The most powerful thing in our little neighborhood of planets is our sun. It's power that we can't even comprehend. And yet it is dwarfed by suns infinitely larger than it in our universe. And what it shows us is that God is the powerful one. 
I mean, there's power in a star that we can't even comprehend or understand. I mean, besides going outside and getting really badly sunburned, it's really hard to comprehend the fullness of the power of the sun. And yet the scriptures would say that God holds every star in its place by his power. What does that mean for us as Christ followers? As we find the walls of the season closing in on us, we're losing it. My God is the powerful one. He is powerful enough to, to bring about every promise that he's made towards me. The world is not out of control. It is not out of his powerful grip. That God is creative. I love the fact that he filled the earth with 318 million cubic miles of water. That it is so vast and so big that we're still discovering things that are in the ocean. I don't know if you've watched that Planet Earth episode. They go down in a submarine. They're going down. And as they're going down, it's like, what is that? No one one has ever seen that before. What is that? What is that? What is that? And we find them discovering things now that have never been discovered. Whether Earth is 6,000 years old or 4.3 billion years old, God's been enjoying it for that entire time. His creativity. I mean, geckos. The other day I opened a window and this tiny little gecko fell to the ground. Tiny little thing. I'm like, what is going through God's mind when he's like, geckos? It's this tiny little creature. Its tail falls off when it gets a fright and wiggles. And then it's got these feet with these like giant suction toes that are just really cute and it can climb up walls. I'm like, that is birthed out of the creative mind of our God. It tells us something. And as we investigate God's world, we get to see the nature of God. We get to see the character. We even get to see the inner working emotional life of God as we go to Genesis 1 where it says, he delighted in his creation. I love the idea of a God who delights. A God who creates and says, this is good creates us and says, this is very good. Shows us that he's not just power, he's not just authority, but he is a God of delight and creativity. He has massive authority. He says, let there be light and there is light. And both science and scripture would say that the universe started with light. God said, let there be light, big bang. How, who? How, who? We see that God is a God of order. That he does order, that he he brings where where there is chaos and nothingness. Out of nothing, he creates spaces. And then he orders those spaces and fills them with creation. There are 9,000 species of birds in the sky. In the Amazon jungle, in just a square kilometer, there are 6,000 species of plants. God orders and brings things to be that were never there before. It's incredible. Our God is a God of order. And in this time of chaos and loss of control and everything seems disordered, as we step back, we can go, no, our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of control. Our God is a God of authority. Our God is a God of delight and creativity. And he will restore this world to the way it should be. And finally, our God is a God of work and rest. And we're going to unpack that a bit more later. So my heart because I know these things can be controversial. I know these things, the debate can get heated. My heart is that we as Christ followers would realize what, what, what God is trying to do through Genesis 1 and that we wouldn't miss the opportunity for him by his spirit, his presence, and his power right now to, to pour something into our hearts that causes us to see our, the, the goodness of the character of God in such a way that our hearts are filled with awe and wonder. Don't miss the awe and wonder this morning because of unnecessary debate. What we're going to do now is we're going to go into a time of communion. 
I think I have to wander over there. Yeah, there it is. And we're going to go into time of communion as a response to this message. And I can't think of a, a more appropriate way of landing this message and keeping the main thing the main thing and the real focus the real focus. Because as we turn our attention away from, from the debate and onto this table, I'm going to ask for you to partake. I want this to be a high participation moment. We've got people in the room here. Get your stuff ready. If you're at home, get your stuff ready. This is the moment to get out of just listening and to partake. And that's what I love so much. God created this bread. God's, in God's heart and mind was bread, and I love bread. Everybody else is eating crackers. Sorry, I've got bread. Okay? But there's something about this bread and this creation of this bread that is significant. Because Jesus, when he, he instituted this, this moment of Christ followers being together and eating a meal together, he took the bread and he broke it into pieces. And what the breaking of the bread into pieces signified is, yes, this world is very, very, very good. And when it was created, God looked at us and said, very good, but it is broken. And it's not the way it should be. And the creator God would step down into human history. And he would allow his body to be broken. So that not only would he be creator God, but he would be savior God, restoring all things to himself. You see, God is at work, not just back there in creation. He's at work in the world right now, alive and powerfully at work. And I really want you to believe that in this moment. And whether you're a Christ follower or not, to really... Trust this to be a moment of encounter. We've got a whole lot of knowledge. Now we're trusting for encounter that you would experience the living God pour out his spirit and meet you in the reality of his gospel and his finished work on the cross. I want to read from John 1, 1 to 5 quickly. It says this, in the beginning, this is John's account of the gospel. In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Before anything, Jesus was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That's creation. And without him, not anything was made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life. The very beginning of creation was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John is building up an introduction to the reality of the gospel and the finished work of Jesus. He says, both creation started with light and the gospel starts with light. Where there was darkness, God says, let there be light. Where there's darkness and sin and rebellion and separation between us and God, Jesus would speak, let there be light. And this is a moment of what it cost Jesus to bring light into this world, into this broken world. And we get to celebrate his finished work, his body broken on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we get to partake in his blood spilt for the, for the forgiveness of our sins. Washing away what, what is dark in us and making us whole in him. Restoring part of that process of restoring back creation to the way that it should be. And this is a sacred moment. This is a moment of enjoying God and celebrating God and being grateful for God in creation and redemption. So let's do that together. What I want to do is, if you came with someone, um, or if you're at home, to actually get together and to huddle now. For the next 30 seconds, 45 seconds, I want you to pray prayers of gratitude and wonder and awe, God in creation and God in salvation. And then I want you to enjoy taking this meal together. Let's do that now for the next 30, 40 seconds.
your goodness towards us in creating us and giving us this wonderful world which points to you, Father. Thank you for your word and your message to us that shows us and reveals to us who you are and what you've done for us. I pray, Father, that you would continue to meet us and minister to us and, and to speak to us about everything that's going on in our hearts and minds. God, would you meet us, each one of us, individually where we're at? And Father, as we stand now to sing, would you, would you cause our hearts to rise up in victory and confidence and hope as we reflect on the reality of who you are and what you've done? Change our disposition and help us feel that sense of awe and wonder towards you. We love you, God. We trust you and we rest in you.